Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we return to the Gospel of Mark. We had a, a very happy departure from Mark last week as we had the joy of installing a third elder among us, Brother Clint Stoltzfus. But now we come back to the Gospel of Mark. And I ask you to turn to Mark 15 once again. And as you do, we find ourselves once again at the foot of the cross, which we might call holy ground. Because it is on that cross that, as the hymn writer says, the Prince of Glory died. We continue to stand at the foot of the cross, which is holy ground. And we've been focusing on the sufferings of Jesus in the crucifixion. We saw first his physical suffering that began with him actually carrying the physical cross upon his shoulders. And that physical suffering continued as he was actually hung, impaled upon that cross of wood. But as we talked about the physical sufferings of Jesus, we, we were struck by the amazing reality that all the gospel writers speak of the crucifixion with an amazing brevity. They simply say, and they crucified him. And I noted that the likely reason for that is that they didn't want us to get preoccupied with sentiment over the physical sufferings of Jesus. But the gospel writers want us to focus on what is really most important, and that is the meaning of the crucifixion. Not to get all caught up in the emotion and sentiment of a suffering man suffering unto death, but it's the meaning of the cross that is most important. You know, on the way to the crucifixion, Jesus had an interesting interchange with some women. I ask you not to turn there, but I'm going to read from Luke 23, beginning at verse 26. Luke 23 and verse 26. Again, you can be in Mark 15. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren, blessed are the wombs who never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Here were some tender-hearted women, as women tend to be. And they were moved sentimentally by the suffering of this man carrying his cross. And Jesus, Jesus refocuses their attention. Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Why? He was pointing them to the significance of the crucifixion. And in that context, the significance of the crucifixion was the judgment that was coming upon Israel because by the crucifixion, they were rejecting their Messiah. And horrific judgment was going to come upon them. And it did come upon them in 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legions overran Rome and destroyed the temple. A million Jews died. Thousands were crucified. And women were eating their own children. And so he calls their attention away from the sentimentality of a suffering man to the significance of the cross. The cross, if it is rejected, means the judgment of God's wrath. But if it is believed, it means eternal life. And so the most important thing is not the details of the suffering of Jesus. It's the meaning of his suffering 
Meaning matters most, I said. But the fact that he suffered so much, I said, was a measure of his great love for us. And then we shifted our attention to the non-physical suffering of Jesus. The anguish that he suffered psychologically and emotionally and mentally, what I called the pervasive mockery to which he was subjected on the cross. From every direction, Jesus was hemmed in by mocking scorn, derision, ridicule, and blasphemy. It came from the soldiers who mocked him by ignoring his suffering as they gambled for his clothes. It came from Pilate, who indirectly mocked him by putting him between two criminals and putting an inscription intended at the, uh, aimed at the Jews, the king of the Jews. It came from passers-by who, who blasphemed him. The chief priests and the scribes certainly mocked Jesus and even the two criminals dying beside him got caught up in the groundswell and insulted him. So the sufferings of Jesus on the cross were intense, physically and emotionally. But friends, the worst is yet to be considered. This morning, we're going to focus on the cry of abandonment from the cross. We're only going to focus on one verse, but I'm going to read 33 to 41 of Mark 15. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. We're going to see three things about this cry of abandonment. We're going to see the setting of the cry, the source of the cry, and the significance of this cry. First, the setting of the cry of abandonment. Again, verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the setting of this cry? Well, it is one of what we know as the seven words of Jesus from the cross. And I'm not here to preach us harmony of the gospels, but I do want to review with you the other words that those last words that Jesus uttered from the cross, to put it in context. The first word that Jesus uttered from the cross is recorded in Luke 23. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Was that prayer heard? It was. It began to be heard right on the cross as one of the thieves. Not in the 11th hour of his life, but in the 59th minute of the 11th hour of his life, he was saved and went to paradise. This Roman centurion at the foot of the cross appears to have been saved. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews, many of whom would have cried out, crucify him, crucify him, were saved. And then as you go through the book of Acts, you see that many Jews, even some of the chief priests, were becoming obedient to the faith. Jesus' prayer for the forgiveness of his crucifiers 
was heard. That was his first word from the cross. The second word is in Luke 23, 43. Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That was the believing thief. Friends, that gives us hope for deathbed conversions. J.C. Ryle, however, in the 1800s said something significant. He said, God saved one thief on the cross that we might have hope but only one that we might not presume. You ever meet people who say, oh, you know, I'm not ready to come to Jesus now. You know, at the end of my life, I'm going to repent and believe and get into the kingdom after I enjoy life. Man, anybody who says that, that person's a fool because there's a process of hardening the heart. And by that time, they will not be able to repent. And how do you know that you're going to be able to repent? You might die instantly in a car crash like our dear young friend, a 12-year-old boy whose tree fell on him a month ago, and he died instantly. It's presumptuous to say, I will put off repentance. If you're not a believer, today is the day of salvation. You better believe now. You don't know if you have tomorrow. But there is such a thing as deathbed conversions, but don't presume upon it. The third word spoken from the cross shows the utter selflessness of the Lord Jesus. He looks at his mother Mary, who is there. He looks at his beloved Apostle John, and he says, Woman, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother. In his dying agony, he, he's caring about his mother, and he's entrusting his, his obviously widowed mother into the care of his beloved Apostle John. The fourth word is the one we have here. It's the only one recorded by Mark. The fifth word from the cross um, happens before what it says in 1536 here. In Mark, it says, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. The fifth word Jesus uttered from the cross, recorded in John 19:28, is this, I am thirsty. And this time, he accepted the sour wine. Now, previously, he did not. We said he did not want to dull the pain, but bear the full brunt of the wrath of God. Why does he now accept this drink of sour wine? The apparent reason is he had some more words to say, and he wanted to say them with a strong, loud voice, but his mouth was so parched he probably couldn't speak unless he had some moistening, and so he accepts the sour wine to be able to utter his final words. His sixth word from the cross, John 19.30, it is finished. And it was not a moan of the defeated. It was not a sigh of resignation. It was a cry of victory. His mission is completed. Redemption has been accomplished. It is finished. And then his final word from Luke 23.46, and again with a loud voice, Luke says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So that's a brief sketch of the seven words of Jesus spoken from the cross. Mark only records one. It is the fourth one right in the middle. It is what we have here in verse 34. So much for the setting of that cry. Now, the source of the cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, El is a Hebrew word that means strength, and the word Elohim, the name for God, refers to God as the mighty God. And Mark uses the Aramaic here, Eloi, Eloi, and the Aramaic, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Friends, this is from Psalm 22. And for much of our time, I'm going to turn you now to Psalm 22. This is an amazing prophecy of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And we're actually going to take the time to go through the psalm, 31 verses, and we're, you know, we're going to do it rather quickly. But this is an amazing account of what Jesus suffered on the cross. Now, it's a psalm of David, written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. And with some messianic psalms, you say, well, that can apply both to David and the Messiah. But the commentators note that there are things in this psalm which cannot apply to David. They can only apply to Jesus. And so this is viewed by many as a pure prophecy predicting the sufferings of Christ. And it's a phenomenal word from God. It's a transcript of what was going through the mind and heart of Jesus as he suffered on the cross. And since there's so much mystery, it's so impenetrable, it's so inscrutable, any glimpse that we have into the heart and mind of the Savior as he's on the cross should be treasured by us. And that's what we have in Psalm 22. And so we're going to look at this psalm for some minutes. As an overview, the first 21 verses describe Jesus being forsaken by God but then 22 to 31 describe Jesus being delivered by God. So there's a noticeable change in the tone. The first 21 verses are very dark, very foreboding as it depicts his suffering. And then there's a shift in the tone from 22 to 31. And I'll call your attention to it. So the psalm begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross in his humanity, perplexed, confused. Why have you? This is not something future and perspective. This is happening right now. Why have you? My father, the one with whom I've enjoyed fellowship from all eternity, why have you abandoned me? I, the one with whom you are well pleased, the one who has only and always done your will perfectly, the one who has only sought your glory, why have you abandoned me? And yet, we see that Jesus is trusting in his father despite his confusion and his suffering. He is still my God, my God. And he talks about not ceasing to cry by day and by night. And what we're seeing in these early verses is kind of an undulation, a rising and falling, where there's a sense of despair and hopelessness. And then there's, there's a, a hope. And then he sinks back into misery. And then hope is revived again. It's kind of undulating waves. And let me just say that, isn't that the case when we are going through some deep trials? Isn't that your experience? All of a sudden, you have a, 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 a surge of hope and, and, and peace. But then as you think of your circumstances, you sink back down into the despair. And then all of a sudden, there, there's hope again and peace. And then isn't that our experience in our humanity when we're going through a deep trial? It's up and down, up and down. And that was what Jesus experienced. 
So we have, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. And then verses three to five. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. Here is Jesus on the cross. And God, you're a God who hears your people and you delivers them. You deliver them and and here's hope that you will deliver me. And then verses 6 to 8, he lapses back again into misery. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that the very thing the gospel writer tells us that he experienced? He's feeling like a worm. He's feeling his lowliness and his helplessness. And this wave of hopelessness seems to crest over him. And exactly what Mark says happened is what is predicted here. There are people wagging their heads. Remember, the the passersby were wagging their heads at him in scorn. There was sneering. There was mocking. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Here we're, we're getting a glimpse of the emotional effect that all that mockery had upon Jesus. It wasn't a light thing for him. We're getting insight into the emotions of the Son of God as he's experiencing this pervasive mockery. It was painful to him. But then he's buoyed up with faith, verses 9 to 11. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And again, after that miserable reflection, he's he's buoyed up with faith. And he calls upon God to help him in this time of distress. But then he sinks back down again in verses 12 and 13. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Isn't that exactly what Jesus experienced as we read it in the Gospels? He was surrounded by whom? By friends? No, by enemies. Hateful chief priests, rude soldiers, cruel passersby, and even the robbers. They are compared here to well-fed, strong, vicious bulls who are bellowing at him and threatening him in their fury. He's feeling like a helpless man trapped in a pen of infuriated bulls or in a den of ravenous lions. That's what he was feeling when he was surrounded by those enemies. And then he moves from describing his enemies to his own wretched condition physically and mentally in verses 14 to 18. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Isn't that amazing? I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Dear friends, isn't that an exact prediction of what happened at the cross? He feels poured out like water, feeling utterly weak and helpless, no firmness in his body, no firmness in his soul. His bones are out of joint. He's experiencing such pain, it's as though every bone in his body is out of joint. A heart of wax, a loss of courage, dried up like a potsherd. You know, when a piece of pottery is put in the kiln, it's put there to dry up all the moisture. And Jesus is saying, my body is dried up of all of its strength. His tongue cleaves to his jaw. He's nearly dead. We're told that 60 to 65% of our bodies is water. If you lose 2% of the water content, you have intense thirst. If you lose 10% of your body fluids, it can bring death. And then he describes dogs surrounding him. Dogs are not little pet golden retrievers. They're mangy scavengers. Another description of his enemies. He's surrounded by an assembly, not of the righteous, but of evildoers. Notice they pierced my hands and my feet. Friends, this is 800 years before crucifixion was even devised as a means of execution. In 1000 BC, crucifixion is described as happening to this man, piercing his hands and his feet. They look, they stare at me, and you can picture the cold, heartless stares of all of those enemies directed at Jesus. They divide my garments. They cast lots for my clothing. Is this something Jesus could have made happen? That's exactly what the Roman soldiers did. They gambled for his clothes. In verses 19 to 21, there's a final call for God's presence and help. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog, Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Final call to God for help. Jesus is on the brink of death. He feels himself enclosed within the jaws of the lion, tossed on the horns of the wild oxen. But now the tone changes. The suffering is over. The experience of forsakenness changes to reflections upon God's deliverance and the result of what he has been made to endure. Now we're going to see the fruit of this agony and suffering. Verse 22, note the change in tone. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Here is Jesus the Son praising God the Father. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, not only is the Messiah praising him, but he's saying to all who fear God, praise God. And now in verse 24, he gives the reason for that praise. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Praise God, Jesus is saying, the Messiah is saying, because when I cried to him, he heard me. You say, wait a minute. Did he hear Jesus? He did not deliver him from the cross, but he delivered him through the cross. 
because it was God's will that he endure the cross. And the Father did help him, not to be spared the cross, but to get through the suffering. And what is the scope of the fruit that would be born by Jesus' crucifixion? Verses 27 to 29. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow down before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. What is the scope of the fruit that will be born from his suffering? Well, first, you know what? Back up to verse 26. I'm sorry. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. What's the result of this suffering that the Messiah has endured? The afflicted, which really speaks of the humble, will eat and be satisfied. Listen to what Spurgeon says as the fruit of the suffering of Jesus. He says with typical poignant eloquence, fathers, I'm sorry, Back up. The spiritually poor find a feast in Jesus. They feed upon him to the satisfaction of their hearts. They are famished until he gave himself for them, but now they are filled with royal dainties. The thought of the joy of his people gave comfort to our expiring Lord. What enabled Jesus to endure the crucifixion? It was the prospect that the afflicted of the earth, the poor, will eat and be satisfied. Salvation will come to them. And now the scope of that salvation, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Here again, Spurgeon says, fathers shall teach. I'm sorry, uh, not Spurgeon yet. This speaks of the extent of the salvation of Jesus. It will extend to the ends of the earth. And we can't help but think of Revelation 5, which is a word from heaven about the saving suffering of Christ and what it will accomplish. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The extent of the fruit that Jesus will purchase on the cross is worldwide. There will be a worldwide people, not only the prosperous, but those who could barely keep their souls alive, the poor and the weak, will become his worshipers. And what will be the duration of the fruit? It ends with verses 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will yet be born that he has literally done it. To the ends of the earth and to the end of time, one generation after another will pass on the news that he has done it, what he did on the cross. He has done it for their salvation. And Spurgeon here very poignantly says, Fathers shall teach their sons, who shall hand it down to their children, the burden of the story always being that he hath done this, or that it is finished. Salvation's glorious work is done. There is peace on earth, and glory in the highest. It is finished. Notice, these were the expiring words of the Lord Jesus, as they are the last words of the psalm. And may we, 
by living faith, being able to see our salvation finished by the death of Jesus. His closing words on the cross, it is finished. The closing words of the song, he has done it. This is a psalm about Jesus. Amazing prediction. A thousand years, ten centuries before the crucifixion, this is giving us a transcript of the thoughts, the feelings, the prayers, the hopes, and the praises coming from our dying Lord. What an amazing word from God. But now thirdly and more briefly, the significance of the cry of abandonment. What's the significance of this cry of Jesus that pierced the air? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it is noted that that sense of abandonment by God on the cross would not make Jesus' death very exemplary if there wasn't something special about it. By that I mean there have been martyrs, men and women, who have gone to the stake and other forms of horrible death with more of a sense of God's nearness and presence and peace than Jesus. And so unless there's something special about Jesus' death with that sense of abandonment by God, it would not be very special or very exemplary. Many martyrs have done better in sensing God's nearness in the hour of their death. Ah, but friends, we know that the death of Jesus was different than any other. It was unparalleled, and it was unique, because on the cross, Jesus was bearing the curse of sin. Jesus was becoming sin for us, his people. This was the reason the Father abandoned him on the cross. Sin separates us from God. God had to remind his Old Testament people through Isaiah in 59 too, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. And we are all born as sinners. Ephesians 2 tells us we were born as dead in our sins. We were part of this world that hates God. We were sons of disobedience. We were given over to the lusts of our flesh. And as a result of that, Ephesians 2, 3 says, we were children of wrath. Sin separates from God. A holy God cannot draw near to sin. And we are all sinners, polluted by nature, born into sin. And so children of wrath. And the picture we get from the Bible, as I said earlier this morning, if we die physically while we are spiritually separated from God because of our sin, we will die eternally. We will forever be separated from the holy presence of God. And Revelation 14.11 speaks of the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image. Jesus described hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But here's the good news. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us, his people. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. On the cross, Jesus took our hell upon himself. He became the object of the Father's wrath that we all deserved. He became, as it were, a giant blotter to soak up an ocean of God's holy anger towards sin. Or, if you will, he became a a lightning rod to attract the white-hot anger of God toward him that it might be diverted from us. And what an indescribable horror it was for Jesus to suffer that separation from God, his Father. We cannot begin to fathom it. We cannot begin to understand one who had perfect, pure fellowship with God from all eternity, and then to have that fellowship ruptured on the cross, and for him to become an object of God's wrath, he who was only the object of God's delight and love, now the object of God's wrath. And this is the greatest suffering of the cross. This agony of separation from his father surpassed the physical agony, which alone was very great. It surpassed the emotional anguish of being mocked by everyone around him. As the hymn we sang says, many hands were raised to wound him. Wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The aloneness and forsakenness on the cross is something we cannot begin to fathom. Now, we as human beings perhaps know seasons of time when we feel abandoned and forsaken. When we don't feel loved by our family, loved by our friends. We may, un- we may feel misunderstood Abandoned, unsupported. It's especially painful if it's a spouse. My wife doesn't understand. Even my husband doesn't sympathize with me. And we may may experience some degree of abandonment and misunderstanding. But we will never know the inky blackness of the soul's terror that marked the abandonment of God the Son by God the Father. No, that death on the cross was unique. It was once for all unique, and it was redemptive. As Jesus was, in a condensed, concentrated way, bearing all of the hell that all of his people deserved, he was bearing in his own body on the tree that we might know nothing but the smile of God. As a result of Jesus being abandoned by God, And that cry being wrenched from his breast, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The result is we have a perfect righteousness before God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him, by union with him in his death, we might be the righteousness of God. You are viewed as perfectly righteous and sinless in God's sight every moment of your life because of that. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hostility has ended. The enmity we had toward God has ended. And God no longer calls us children of wrath. We have peace 
a restored, reconciled relationship to God because Jesus drank up all the wrath that you deserved. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not one iota, not one drop of condemnation will ever come upon you because Jesus drank it all up on the cross. And so in closing, I ask, how should we live in light of what we've seen this morning? First of all, from Psalm 22, will you be confirmed that the Bible is indeed the word of God? Isn't it amazing how a thousand years before the crucifixion, these predictions were made? The prediction of a man experiencing people mocking him with sneers, wagging their heads, taunting him, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him a description of a form of death that would so contort the body that he would feel as though all of his bones are out of joint, producing a burning thirst from a parched mouth, hands and feet pierced 800 years before crucifixion was even invented. The prediction of dividing up his garments and men casting lots for his clothing, exactly what the Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross. And the prediction from Psalm 22 that as a result of that suffering, there would be a people to the ends of the earth who would turn to the Lord and praise the Lord and serve the Lord. And word of this, what he has done will be passed along from generation to generation to the end of time, that he has done it that it is finished. Friends, how could these things have been written about a thousand years earlier unless this is the very word of God, which it claims to be? The apnustos, God breathed. Only the spirit of God could have inspired those words as they were fulfilled in Jesus. And so I ask you, believer, to be confirmed that that book is indeed the word of God. If you're not a believer, believe the Bible. If it's right about that, it's right about a lot of other things. It's right about the diagnosis of the human condition that you are in fact a sinner and that you are indeed facing eternal wrath in hell. But it's also right about the fact that there's a, a wonderful savior who can forgive you, make you a child of God and take you to heaven. This book is true. This is one of the proofs of it. But secondly, from Jesus' cry of abandonment, understand the severity of sin and the futility of self-salvation, of trying to save yourself. As in a previous sermon, I reminded you of the words, and we did sing them this morning, of 257. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here's the point. If there was any other way for us to be saved, wouldn't God have chosen that way? But the only way was for God himself to become a man in the person of Jesus and suffer that alienation upon the cross so that God became estranged from God. God the Son was ripped apart from fellowship with God the Father. If there was any other way of salvation, 
Surely God would have chosen that, but there was none. And so if you are one who's trusting something else to get you right with God, well, I think I can be good enough. I can be religious enough. I can be churchy enough. I can do enough good. Dear friend, if that would get you to heaven, why would Jesus have had to endure that kind of suffering upon the cross? And I would call upon you to repent of any other way that you are trusting to get yourself right with God and put your trust fully in the sin-bearing Savior. That's the only way, but it is a sure way. Give up any other way of trying to save yourself. Thirdly, from Jesus' cry of abandonment, understand the terrors of hell. It was hell that Jesus experienced upon the cross. It was the experience of hell that wrung from his breast that pathetic cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, hell is a God-forsaken place. Or shall I put it this way? Hell is a place where God is present, but only in his wrath. Nothing of his grace, nothing of his mercy, nothing of his love, nothing of his goodness. God is there in hell, but only in his wrathful presence. And for those who reject Jesus, that will be their experience. Have you talked to non-believers? You talk to them about hell and they come back at you and say, oh, you're just trying to scare me into heaven. You ever have somebody say that? Talk about hell. You're just trying to scare me into heaven. You know what my answer would be? You bet I am. Because there are some things you need to be scared about. Because there are some things that are real dangers. If you're going into a neighborhood run by the Mexican cartel, as my son did when he crossed into Nuevo Laredo, with our great nervousness to bring the gospel there where the cartel people watch you. And my son began going in. He's six foot three. He's got a white shirt and tie and said, son, at least take the white shirt and tie off. You're going to stand out. If I warn you, you're going into a neighborhood run by the Mexican cartel who sometimes skin people alive. It's because there's a real danger. If you're going to ride on an ice-covered road with bald tires, and I warn you, it's because it's really dangerous. If you're going hiking in a place where there are grizzly bears and poisonous snakes, and I warn you, it's because there's a real danger. And when we talk to people about hell, it's because hell is real, and you are really in danger of going there. And brothers and sisters, I think we need to reflect more upon the reality of hell because so many of us are so cowardly when it comes to sharing the gospel, aren't we? I'm so afraid what people will think of me, especially in our day. One thing that will help overcome our fear of man is to contemplate this person is going to eternal hell unless they believe the gospel, and somebody needs to tell them. Now, I understand that the fear of hell is not enough to get someone into the kingdom, but if they understand that their sin is serious enough to send them to hell, maybe they'll see, I need a savior. I need to be rescued from the guilt and power of my sin. And then finally, as a result of Jesus' cry of abandonment, let us as his people enjoy God's nearness. Jesus suffered that horrific, unimaginable separation from God that wrung from his breast that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the pinnacle of his suffering. He endured that separation, as we'll sing in a few moments, 
God estranged from God, that we might never be estranged from God. He endured that to purchase for us the promise of Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He suffered that to, to purchase for us the promise of Hebrews 13, 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And to purchase for us what Psalm 16, 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. As the fruit of his suffering, to honor him for his suffering, let's enjoy the God whose presence he purchased for us. Can you say that that's a description of your Christian life? I'm enjoying God. I'm enjoying fellowship with God. The Christian life is not a matter of reading my Bible, following the rules. It's a matter of enjoying God, enjoying his presence, enjoying him, drawing near to him in prayer and delighting in his word, delighting in his providences. As in the prayer meeting this morning, we were giving thanks for some of God's providences, amazing providences, showing his goodness and mercy. Are you enjoying God? That's what the Christian life is about. And Jesus paid a dear price to purchase that enjoyment for us. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says, the nearness of my God is my good. We have a lot of good things we enjoy, but the greatest joy of life ought to be the nearness of our God. Jesus paid a dear price to purchase it. Let's pray and then sing a wonderful song, His Robes for Mine. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to be separated from your Father that we might never in this life or the next be separated from our God. We thank you in your name.